Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm so pleased to have back with us my old friend, Professor Steve Keen, the economist, the author of several books, including Taking the Con Out of Economics, and his new book, The New Economics, a Manifesto. Find his website at Prof. Steve Keen, Keen, K-E-E-N, and his Twitter handle is Prof, P-R-O-F, Prof. Steve Keen. Steve, it's been a long time since we've talked, and I'm so glad to have you back with us. And thank you so much for getting up, you know, insanely early in the morning there in Australia to spend an hour with us and do a deep dive into economics. Much appreciated. Thank you. Well, it's actually much better than a website in Thailand. It would have been 2 o'clock in the morning, so it actually worked out rather well. <laughs> good, good. Okay, let's start at the beginning. In your book, you talk about how our understanding of economics, our modern understanding of economics, that started in the 1770s with Adam Smith publishing Wealth of Nations and in the early 1800s with On Labor. Ricardo. Yeah, David Ricardo. That these guys missed a fundamental piece of economics. They completely basically overlook in their notion about wealth being derived primarily from the production of labor and capital, Mm -hmm. that they missed a third variable that has in some ways arguably led to the ongoing destruction of our planet. Tell me about that. Tom, it's just a compliment to you. Trust you to spot the most important point in the book and lead with it. It's leading out the role of energy. And uh, the ironic thing is that it was actually part of economics theory before uh, Adam Smith turned up, as you know from reading the book, uh, even though the word energy wasn't actually invented until 1809 by an English polymath. And the reason it was in theory was the rival school of economics, uh, which predates the the, uh, classical school of Smith and Ricardo, called the physiocrats in France fundamentally had a theory that said all wealth comes from the sun. It basically said that there is a free gift of nature. That's literally, if you read people like Turgot, you'll find that phrase. We exist because of the free gift of nature. And that free gift was obvious to the French because it was still a very, by far, more an agricultural society than the UK was even at that time. And, of course, if you plant one seed, then you get a plant with a thousand seeds on it, and that was seen as a free gift. And then that came from, you know, it wasn't known where, but fundamentally the sun was the background thought they had. That enables the the husbandman, the farmer, as they called uh, the farmers, to take that free gift, hang on to part of it, and then hand over some to workers and some to the state. And that was what they saw as the source of wealth. And if you read Cantillon, Cantillon begins his magnum opus by saying, land is the source of all value. Now, by land, what he meant was that same argument, and and the land absorbs the energy coming from the sun. And you you read that first paragraph, and basically, looking at it, Smith stole the paragraph and replaced the word land with labour. And I think that set us on the wrong train of ignoring the role of energy right until, you know, this point now we're having an energy crisis because we've used up uh, as much of the fossil fuels as we can possibly allow without destroying the biosphere. Yeah. The idea that the sun powers everything, and ultimately it doesn't, I mean, even oil is just ancient sunlight. It's 200 billion year old sunlight that was captured by plants. That the sun powers everything actually predated Adam Smith. And Adam Smith basically rejected that and said, no, it's machinery, you know, the productivity of machinery and human labor. And it's got nothing to do with energy. It's got nothing to do with the sun or the soil or, you know, growing things like that. 
Oh, it was largely because of the different the two societies they came from. I'm not blaming the individuals here. I'm, I'm leading it back to the industrial nature of the two economies. So right. if you're riding in France, you're, you've got a you know, lush, I mean, you, you know what France is like. It's lush uh, scenery, uh, a whole society at that stage based on the peasantry, very feudal system uh, right up until the, uh, the French Revolution. So everything was about agriculture. And the important thing about agriculture is the inputs... The outputs are the same as the inputs. You plant corn, you get corn. Uh, so what you did, you planted corn, you got more corn back than you planted. That was obvious in agriculture. But to them, particularly since French industry was very very poorly developed compared to Scottish industry, they treated the, uh, the industrial sector as what they called the sterile class. So they literally said that the only... That they called the, the productive class were the farmers because they were the ones who could directly exploit the free gift of nature. And then because the productive class needed uh, tools and the elite needed carriages, and that's the term that Canet actually used in his famous tableau economique, uh, then they had to have materials reworked by the manufacturing sector. Uh, but according to the, uh, the uh, physiocrats, the manufacturing sector simply transformed the value they got from agriculture. It didn't add any extra value. Now, if you look at uh, Smith at the time, Smith's Wealth of Nations was written, I'm not sure which side, it's one side or the other, a matter of years uh, from Smith, from the uh, development of James Watt's steam engine. And, of course, there'd been steam engines for at least 50 to 100 years before that and water power and so on. So Scotland was... Uh, really, uh, the, the leading uh, in, in development of industrial technology was Scotland. And this didn't gel with Smith because, again, if you've been to Scotland, yes, OK, they can farm, they can grow some sheep and stuff like that, but it's not where you choose to base your farming society. So looking at his own uh, world, he would say, well, I, this doesn't make sense to me. It can't be the land. Well, it's, maybe it's the labour. This is because Adam was Smith was a that. Scotsman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, and, and Scotland is, is is not a yeah. lush a lush place like like you know center like France is. And yeah. so, so how different would economics of the world be, and by extension the politics of the world, if in yeah. 1776 when Adam Smith published Wealth of Nations and literally informed all the founders of this country and 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 created a shockwave around the world in terms of economic theory. Mm-hmm. If in that book, instead of ripping off an earlier economist who said that everything comes from the sun, Adam Smith had changed that to labor, I believe he said. What if he had said there are three sources of wealth? There is the sun and its impact on soil, in other words, agriculture. There is human labor, the ability of human labor to add value to things. And there is the ability of machinery, which basically just amplifies human labor, you know, you can do with a tractor, you know, in one hour what you can do with 50 people in, in, you know, in an hour. If he had had this tripartite perspective rather than just excluding the sun. I mean, if, if we had, if we had mm-hmm. seen energy as an intrinsic part of economic theory since the 1770s, how different would the world be right now? I think we'd have a sustainable planet uh, because, uh, as I said, the, uh, the concept was that energy was the necessary input. And I'll just, you know, very recently, and it's, it still feels ridiculous for me to say this, but I've properly formalised its role now in production in a paper I wrote in 2019. Uh, but what we've had since Adam Smith is, is, is a set of theories which have left energy out completely. So first of all, you have the, the labour theory of value that said all work comes from labour, and Marx ultimately argued that machines contribute nothing. We regarded machines as a sterile class. And then, then you had the value wars with the neoclassicals who say, well, everything adds value, and they made it subjective. And all the way through, have been ignoring energy. Now, if we started off by looking at energy, then economics would have been consistent with physics when physics developed the laws of thermodynamics. And that would then have explained, oh, that's, this is why it's correct. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a given amount of energy in the universe. This is the conservation of energy. And to do work, we have to use that energy uh, and been doing the work because of the second law of thermodynamics, we must generate waste as well. So we would have known from 1800, the 1800s fundamentally that to do to manufacture on the planet, we are necessarily generating waste, and that waste in its must inherently degrade the biosphere. 
So we would have had the like, environmental awareness that would, you know, came with, with the limits to growth and, and Greenpeace and so on in the, in the 60s and 70s and forward. We would have had that 160 years earlier. And I think we would have realised the damage we were doing by pollution. Amazing. And by degrading the biosphere, they're, it's you know, in, indirectly degrading the economy because this is an economic yeah. argument. Absolutely brilliant. I want, I want to continue with this conversation. We're talking our conversations with great minds today. Professor Steve Keen, K-E-E-N, the uh, economist, author of several books, his most recent, and New Economics, a manifesto. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You can tweet Steve at Prof Steve Keen, S-T-E-V-E-K-E-E-N, by the way, on Twitter. I don't pretend to be an economic scholar, but I'm fairly well read in the field and, and have some strong opinions. And I read Smith. In fact, I thought his much better book, you know, Wealth of Nations was good, but I thought A Theory of Moral Sentiments was his, the book that we really should be paying attention to. And I've read David Ricardo. In fact, I quote in one of my books, Screwed, I quote his, what was originally a, an article that became part of a larger book called On Labor uh, extensively. Yeah. And, and a number of the other you know, economists, uh, right through John Maynard Keynes, none of them are talking about energy. Or, or am I missing something? Is this, a, is, is this something that just kind of fell off the radar screen in the 1770s and never got put back on? Or have people been trying to say this and we just haven't been listening? The latter, uh, but it's only been a tiny minority who've done it. So Georgescu Rosen, for example, a Romanian economist in the 1970s and 80s, he became aware of the laws of thermodynamics, realised that economics had to be consistent with them, and was talking all the time about the role of energy. A good friend of mine, Bob Ayers, who was a physicist who came into economics, has been trying for 40 years to get economists to pay attention to the role of energy. Charlie Hall, who's another, another good friend of mine, another physicist, saying economics must be consistent with the laws of thermodynamics and energy plays an essential role. So they've existed, but they've been peripheral characters. And the mainstream uh, has been dominated by ultimately neoclassical economists. And according to them, it's all subjective. It's all about maximising utility, etc., etc. And they don't actually have a link to the physical world. So their, their model of production basically has... Output, uh, you have inputs of technology, which is this vague, waffly term they use, times labor, times capital, and there's no role for energy. Wow, wow. So how best to expand this idea and share it with others? Uh, outside of promoting uh, your book, which I'm happy yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah. Is there a meme the here, you know? Is there a, a bumper there sticker? There is a meme. There is a meme, and this is where... My resolution of this uh, came from, uh, I was walking through, uh, as it happens, Bob Ayers' house, which was full of sculptures. And out of the blue, this little thought popped into my mind, labor without energy is a corpse. Capital without energy is a sculpture. And I thought, that's it. And I sat down and five minutes later, I'd written the, the, the modified production equation. Because when you look at how neoclassicals occasionally attempted to bring energy in, they said, well, energy is the third factor of production. So rather than just multiplying technology by labor and capital, we multiply technology by labor and capital and energy. But they use a, they raise it to a power, and the power is there so that if you double all the inputs, you double the outputs. This is sort of a, a logical check. And the, the exponent they use is based upon the share of that particular factor in the economy. So the exponent they use for energy is, is 0.03, 3%. Because roughly 3% of GDP is the energy sector. They gave 70% to labour and 27% to machinery. Now, when you look at uh, the way that I see it, energy is an input to both labour and capital. And then what is the output is the useful work they can both do. Can we talk about inflation for a moment? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Here in the United States, uh, we're experiencing inflation. It looks like this year it's going to be around 5 or 6% when all is said and mm-hmm. done. There's a lot of hysteria around it. There are people who are suggesting Mm -hmm. it's the natural rebound from, you know, the austerity or the lack of demand, basically, during the COVID time, sort of like after World War II, there was an inflation. Others are saying, oh, my God, it's because the Democrats are spending too much money. We've got to stop them from spending money and helping out people, although it's fine if they spend $700 billion on the military, but no, they can't spend money on people. And then there's Mm -hmm. others who are saying it's all the Fed. The Fed, haven't you noticed that since 2008, Mm -hmm. the American money supply has exploded? What say you? 
It's a breakdown of the supply chain. One of the main reasons why we've had falling inflation since the 1980s is because of the relocation of production to third world economies like China, uh, which, of course, is no longer a third world economy. It's becoming uh, the, the major power on the planet. But American capital, in search of more profits for them and paying less for wages, was seduced into moving its production facilities, particularly to China. And then that meant that there was this enormous long supply chain as well. I think the, I'm holding my iPhone right now. I think that apparently there are parts in this, in this device from about 100 countries. Now, that is an incredibly fragile system. You wouldn't you know, necessarily tell have been his term uh, anti-fragility. That is an incredibly fragile system because if something goes wrong in one country, suddenly you can't produce an iPad, an iPhone. Now, of course, it's gone wrong in 200 countries. And that disruption to the supply chain is pushing up the costs and, re- and reducing the supply as well. Plus, we also do have uh, households who have an enormous amount of money because the government ran a deficit. And by the government running a deficit, the savings accounts of Americans dra- rapidly rise. And so they do have the power to shop as well. So there is that remnant of demand pull, but the fundamental cause for the, for the uh, increase in prices is a breakdown in the supply chain. Are you in Australia experiencing the same kind of inflation we are here in the United States and for the same reasons? Not quite as bad. Uh, Australia is we've got a very small manufacturing sector. It sacrifices its manufacturing sector to expand its mining sector. Uh, but uh, no, so we have to import a lot of goods, and therefore the import shortages do turn up. But I've seen nothing like the reports about the scale of, uh, of breakdown in the supply chain in America, where you have so many containers on the wharf that you can't unload them fast enough, and, uh, and and you can't get the empty ones shipped back to China, and so on. So it appears that this is striking the American economy more than it's striking. The Australian, even though there is inflation here as well, but not as bad as America. Well, after George W. Bush put China into the WTO in December of 2001, which was largely unnoticed by Americans because it was right after 9-11, in the years that have happened since then, in the 20 years that have happened since then, we have had 60,000 plus factories, not jobs, factories, move from the United States to China. Have you seen a similar deindustrialization in Australia as a consequence of China and the WTO? Yeah, fundamentally what has happened is American corporations that used to produce locally now produce in China and ship out to Australia. And, uh, and it is a dramatic deindustrialization of the West, and China has exploited that brilliantly. I was actually in China in 81-82 for a business conference with journalists, and I took uh, journalists on a tour of the Shenzhen Free Trade Zone. We had it explained to us there that the... the the, the builders of the free trade zone were exploiting a loophole in the American trade uh, laws that enabled an American company to re-export from a third world country and not pay tariffs on the import. And they're also, of course, exploiting low wages. But they required the American company to have a Chinese partner. And within five years, the Chinese partner had to own 50% of the business. Now, you would, why would the American partner agree with that? Because the wages and costs were so much lower right. that 50% of the profits was much more than they were getting at 100% of the profits but paying American workers and American costs instead. That's amazing. It's amazing, too, that you were in Shenzhen in 1981. Louise and I were in Shenzhen in 1981. Were you? <laughs> yeah. Would, you know, we were, we, I had business in Hong Kong, and we just took one of these day okay. tours over to because it was the new oh. experimental thing, you know? And uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it was just a little kind of uh, dirt town, a dirt road town in, in many ways. And they were just starting to it build was, the industry, yeah. you know. I, I, I think, yeah. And yeah. now it's now it's the manufacturing center for the world. I think at the time there were just a few, th- you know, maybe maybe at the most 100,000 people there, probably less than that. Um, anyhow, pro- Professor Steve Keen is with us. I want to get into banks create money. Why did mainstream economists completely miss George W. Bush's big crash in 2008 when Steve Keen was warning about it. Steve, in chapter two of your book, you talk about how banks create money through extending credit, basically. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Basically, and and how it's you know it's critical to any kind of understanding of macroeconomics, but neoclassical economics, you know, economics going back to Adam Smith, the way that we largely think, or economists largely think of money and the money supply and all this other stuff, largely ignores that. Uh, you know, they're, they're not looking at that. Um, you know, I mean, a few people have talked about this. In fact, you you note Hyman Minsky, for example, whose son has been on this program a number of times, um, and uh, you know, talk and Michael Hudson, who's been on this program, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, who's no longer with us, but uh, you know, uh, talked about this. But but by and large, this whole issue of fractional reserve banking. And how number one, it's you know, number one, it's role in creating money, and number two, it's role in creating debt, um, debt that can never be resolved. It's like a, a game of musical chairs, is almost never discussed by economists or in our economic discussions. Let me just toss that to you with uh, however, you, wherever you want to go with it. Yeah, it, it's fundamentally because if you include banks, you can no longer hold your way of thinking to equilibrium, because if banks create money. Uh, then they're adding to aggregate demand, and that expands the economy, and so you're out of a world of equilibrium. And uh, I think this is fundamentally why they simply don't want to know about it. So particularly American economists built up this myth that banks are what they call financial intermediaries. And the idea is that they, they, the bank doesn't actually lend money. If Tom Hartman goes to, to the bank to, uh, to borrow money, what the bank does is take some money out of Steve King's deposit account and put it in Tom Hartman's. Uh, and then Steve King gets paid a, a uh, interest payment for, for the privilege of doing that. And, and that is what's called the model of loanable funds. And if, you, if they do that, there's no role for credit in aggregate demand. And that's the way they prefer it. But the real world is completely different. When, when Tom Hartman goes to a bank and says, I want to you know, start a business or buy a house, they say, great idea, here's a million dollars to do it, and by the way, you owe us a million dollars. So they create the deposit in your account by creating an asset for themselves as well, which you then have to service. And me as saver, I have no role in that. Uh, so rather than the banks lending out deposits, bank lending creates deposits. It, it creates it out of thin air, and with a double-entry bookkeeping system, it also creates yeah. the debt that goes along with it. And then, and then, uh, in addition to the debt, not only have I borrowed a million dollars from the bank, and the bank has said has put on their books that I owe them a million dollars, but they've also put on their books that I owe them an, an additional hundred thousand dollars in interest. How does that get accounted for? Well, that's, no, this is one of the major confusions people have when they start working in this area, and that is that the money you owe in debt is denominated in dollars, obviously. But the amount you pay as interest in dollars is denominated in dollars per year. Now, you can pay that. If you borrow a million dollars and you have to pay 10% interest to the, to the bank, so you're paying $100,000 a year, if you use that million dollars to generate a business that turns over, let's say, a million dollars a year, uh, then out of that million dollars, you might pay 800000 in wages to your workers. You might pay $50,000 in, in rent for your equipment. You pay $100,000 to the bank, and you hang on to a $50,000 a $50, profit. So, so long as you turn the money over, the money circulates, you can come out ahead and you can continuously service that debt. But, of course, to expand economic activity, then more credit is necessary. And the real danger isn't the interest on that so much. Um, it would all disappear if interest was zero, but that's, that's in a fantasy world. Uh, but it's the fact that we continue expanding the level of debt 
faster than the economy grows. And that's where our crises have come from. Uh, we, and the reason for that is simple. We tend to borrow during a boom and have to repay during a slump. And so the level of debt ratchets up over time, and that's what led to the financial crisis in 2008. And that debt is all basically created out of nothing by the banks because of our fractional yeah. reserve banking system. Well, is, is there a way to, uh, is, it, is it a fundamentally broken system or is it just that it needs to be more tightly regulated so it doesn't spin out of control? Well, it needs to be more, more tightly regulated because we treat banks as if they're masters of the universe. You know, that wonderful phrase they use to describe themselves, right. particularly the, uh, the shadow banking system. They're not masters of the universe. They are people who organised to raise equity in a bank and then applied to the government to get a banking licence. And once they had the banking licence, that gave them the capacity to create money and they go crazy with it. And it's crazy in all sorts of ways. They, you know, loans to help out uh, friends, etc., etc. That's certainly a lot of illegality happens in the financial sector. But fundamentally, the easiest way for them to make money is to, cre is to create debt. And the easiest way to create debt is to talk us into a Ponzi scheme. And the Ponzi scheme, of course, back in the uh, uh, 2000 crisis was the housing sector. They said, don't worry if you borrow more than you can repay. Uh, you know, borrow the money, buy the house, furnish it as well. We'll give you a 120% uh, loan. Uh, and then service it with, the first, with, with part of the 20% above the cost, furnish it as well. And when you can't afford any more, sell it on the market, you'll make a profit, and on we go. Now, that is a totally non-creative use of money. We should be giving money to entrepreneurs uh, which are giving working capital corporations, and, and with that, which we're saying to the banks, you cannot lend to finance an asset bubble. But mm. we don't do that. We treat them as though they're masters of the universe, and therefore we end up in financial crises. Yeah, I think we're we're looking at an asset bubble in real estate right here, right now, as well. Again, yeah. yeah. Um, you you write in your book that uh, far from government, and, and let me actually just to set this up. I had a caller in the last hour who was like. Um, you know, uh, obviously, an, uh, you know, a partisan opponent to the Build Back Better and, and uh, other investments by the federal government that uh, mm -hmm. President Biden is talking about doing. And he said, mm -hmm. uh, you know, our country's in such debt. You don't want to have more debt, do you? I mean, that, that'll be a terrible thing. It'll hurt mm -hmm. the economy, won't it? Um, the flip side of this is what you write in your book. You write, far from government deficits burdening future generations, they enrich current generations monetarily. Any impact on future generations depends on the economic and political consequences of the spending which generates the deficit. And this is what I said to him when he called. I said, you know, if, if the government spends money on, bill, as Eisenhower did, we, we came out of World War II at 127% of GDP debt. We, you know, the largest debt the United States has ever had as a percentage of GDP. Eisenhower borrowed yeah. more money, built an interstate highway system with that money, and all the economic activity that that highway system produced increased the GDP to the point where it increased taxable income to the point where it paid back our national debt from World War II. Am I saying that right? Is that what you're trying to say in this chapter? That's absolutely true. We have a completely perverted vision of the role of both private banks and the government in money creation. And both can create money. The private banks create money when they lend out more than they take back in repayments. But government creates money when it spends more than it takes back in taxes. Now, uh, the, the danger of private banks doing it is that the, the people who borrow end up with a debt. So if you borrow money from a bank, you don't have any change in your net financial position uh, because your money, your deposits have gone up, but your, your loan to the bank has gone up identically and therefore you're, you're no better off. But what happens with government money is the government puts money in your bank account. If it spends more than it taxes, then bank accounts rise. And the matching asset on the banking sector side of things are the reserves. So it creates excess reserves. Now, those excess reserves are then what the banks themselves use to buy the bonds uh, that the government later puts out to finance the deficit or earlier. The, the timing doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, but so the government debt is not debt at all. It's changing the nature of the assets on the banking sector's uh, balance sheet from reserves, which they can't trade and they can't um, sell, into bonds, which they can trade and they can sell. So the whole worrying about it is just completely wrong. And at the same time, people worry about the, the ratio of government bonds to GDP, which is really what government debt is, and they ignore the ratio of private debt to GDP, and that's what drives the system into crisis. And what is the ratio of private debt 
to GDP right now around the world or in the United States, if you if you happen well, to know off the top of your head? Yeah. In the United States, it's about 170% of GDP. Whoa. Now that's, uh, yeah, I know. It's all, it's, it was twice the level of government, government debt to GDP. And this is what amazes me, because we've been educated by economists to have a blind spot about private debt. But when you take a look at it, uh, you, you, you find that private debt is often two and three times the scale of government debt and has been growing much more rapidly than government debt as well. So we're worried about the level of government debt, which, which is not a problem, first of all, uh, in its own right, and secondly, much smaller than private debt. It, we're we're going to hit a break in just a minute, but Steve, isn't there some point at which government debt becomes a burden to the country, if for no other reason, because every year it has to make interest payments? Uh, no, because again, the interest payments uh, can effectively be financed by selling more bonds. The interest payments themselves create money. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the, the problem is when you run a trade deficit. That's my my feeling. My my position, which is a completely different thing than the national deficit. debt. Yeah, but if you're running a trade deficit, then that is going to undermine you over time. Okay, we've been doing that since Reagan. I mean, I I, yeah, I, I think the last years that we didn't have a trade deficit were Jimmy Carter's. Yeah, but you are the reserve currency, so you can't run out of, of the reserve currency because you create it. You know, I see, but Australia dollar. can. Yeah, we can. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's when companies get in trouble that way. Fascinating stuff. Steve writes in his new book about debt jubilee and how we completely misunderstood John Maynard Keynes, or at least many economists have chosen to. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Steve's website is Prof. Steve Keen. That's also his Twitter handle, S-T-E-V-E-K-E-E-N. You talk in your book about how John Maynard Keynes was a counterforce to the neoclassical economics of the 20th century. But it's been largely written out of the history books, as it were, particularly the history of economics. Um, and and I've, I've always been a fan of Keynes. I've, I've read two of his books. Who was he? What did he say? And what are we ignoring at our own peril? Fundamentally, he said that what determines uh, investors' behavior is expectations of profit and expectations concerning the future, about which we know very little. So that fundamental vision said that speculation, uncertainty, you have to have those in a, in a realistic sense in your economic model or you're not under, going to understand what's going on. And instead, the mainstream argued that, well, let's assume we know the future. Uh, and therefore, if you know the future, we know the returns that our various investments will earn. Uh, and so the only question that matters is what rate do we have to discount those returns at? So the interest rate, if you put the interest rate up, that will make less investments profitable, and that will slow the economy down. And then if you uh, reduce the interest rate, the reverse happens. So you can control the economy using the interest rate. And that became the mainstream, and that became how Keynes was misinterpreted as well. And what that meant was it, it gave a, a very uh, stylized, static vision, effectively, of how an economy operates. Well, and this but is Keynes was fundamentally into uncertainty and, and, and vitality of capitalism. Yeah, and this and this is what Powell, Jerome Powell, our Fed chair, is doing right now. He's just announced that he's going to raise interest rates three times in the next uh, twelve months, and uh, you know people are cheering when you said the inflation is not being caused by low interest rates or by increases in the money supply. It's being caused by the fact huh. that there's not enough goods and there's too much demand because of the supply chain problems, which go back to Ronald Reagan. Yeah, so we could see a collapse coming out of those interest rates rises because 
they're not aware of the level of private debt. And they record the data, but they don't think it actually matters. So their attitude is, well, if we put interest rates up, uh, that'll benefit creditors, but uh, it'll punish, punish debtors, debtors, pardon me, but creditors will benefit. So one loses, the other gains. The macroeconomic impact is minor, and we just slow down the economy. But the reality is, with the level of private debt Americans are carrying right now, what that will mean is people will decide, I can't carry this debt anymore. I have to pay my debt down. And when you reduce your debt, that is negative credit, and the economy will plunge as a result of that. Because you're That's reducing the money supply? You're reducing the money supply, yeah. And you're reducing demand as well, if you're paying down That's debt right. rather than buying things. Yeah. yeah, so they're leaving out that particular vital factor because credit is left out of their models of the economy. But isn't but everybody is being massively in debt forever uh, an unsustainable model also? It is unsustainable, and we've allowed far too much debt to be created, which is why I proposed a modern debt jubilee. You know, everybody's all hysterical about the federal debt. That is largely meaningless. Powell is going to raise interest rates to try to slow down the economy. That runs the risk of crashing the 170% of GDP individual, personal, and corporate debt, the private debt in the United States. And that could have a very, very bad impact on us just in time for the election in 2022. Uh, drum policy Republican, of course. Isn't it unsustainable to have just massive private debt out there? And you said, yes, that's why we need a debt jubilee. And you're calling for that in your book on pages 65 through 68. Tell us about it. Okay. Uh, if you look back at ancient societies, and that's where, of course, the, the dear departed David Graeber and Michael Hudson are the experts, those societies, until they started to break down, had regular debt jubilees. So they would abolish uh, uh, household debt, not not corporate debt, so they effectively uh, household debt every seven times seven years or every change of ruler. And that wiped the slate clean. We call that a jubilee. Now, uh, we don't do that anymore. Uh, but what is, what has happened, of course, is uh, we now have an enormous level of private debt, probably the highest level of private debt in the history of humanity compared to income. And uh, and all the, all the laws are protecting the rights of creditors and not the rights of debtors, when the creditors are the ones who play a huge role in, in enticing us into debt. So we need to abolish it, but we can't simply say, everybody who has debt, we're writing your debt off, for, for two reasons. One is that that would have potentially a damaging impact on the capacity of the financial sector to continue. And the other is it would effectively penalise people who, who were restrained from the speculation that the banks were trying to seduce us all into. So my proposal is to use the fact that we have two ways to create money now. The government can run uh, a deficit or banks can lend more than they get back in repayments. Use the government's capacity to create money, to create an amount of money for every person on an equal basis, and then that money must be used to pay down debt. Now, if you don't have debt... That money could be used, for example, to buy the government bonds that were later used to finance that whole operation, and you would earn an interest on those bonds. So uh, it, it, the number I use in the book, for both for hypothetical reasons and because it's pretty much equal to the American situation, is $100,000 per adult. Now, if you did that, you would effectively eliminate household debt, and you would have much more money turning up in the hands of working class and, and middle class people. And when I model this in my Minsky software, I get a boom out of it because we're taking, we're not taking money out, we're re redistributing money, existing money. So more of it ends up in the hands of those who spend more rapidly and the economy will boom as a result. And ironically, I didn't expect this, but both the level of private debt fell and the level of government debt because of the increased activity by spreading the money more broadly. But wouldn't, wouldn't that boom exacerbate the, the demand crisis that we have right now, or the, the supply crisis, yeah. actually? There's not enough supply and, and, and there's so much more demand? And, and that's why you would uh, use the bonds, and this is what we did during World War II. Bonds were sold to the uh, household sector, the private sector. They were marketed as if your bonds help us buy this uh, uh, submarine. But the reality was those bonds stopped you spending money. You, if, you pay, if you had a bond you paid $100 for, then you had $100 less to spend. You got $5 per year interest coming in, so you regarded that as savings. But you then, within the rations that were, particularly in the UK, of course, uh, the rations that were used to restrain private spending and enable as much of the economy as possible to be put towards the war. So basically, you can only use the money to pay down debt or to hold as government bonds. You can't go on a buying spree at Macy's.
Yeah, that's right. And you, given the fact we face a climate catastrophe, not just a, you know, a worried in the future, I think we're very close to very serious climate disruption. We want to put as much of our resources into addressing the climate issue and as little as possible into uh, hair creams and toothpastes and, 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 you know, and the frippery of modern capitalism. Right. Would you call all this stuff in aggregate mon- modern monetary theory? You've been affiliated with that movement in the mm-hmm. past. Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 they're, they're correct about the accounting. Uh, I don't think they have to properly include the role of credit yet. They can do that and expand their knowledge. And we need to look at the, the ecological issues as well, which modern monetary theory would be the only way we'd be able to finance the transition we need uh, to go to a non-carbon energy system and avoid ecological catastrophe. Amazing. Brilliant. Professor Steve Keen, his new book, The New Economics of Manifesto. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's been great talking with you. Always great talking with you. I, I hope one of these days soon we can physically get together again. It's been too long. Professor Steve Keene. Randy in Ottawa, Iowa. Hey, Randy, what's on your mind today? To do with your inflation. They were talking about Apple and how in 2018 Apple was worth, and, and I'm going to, using a scale as the, uh, uh, the tax cuts, the the 2017, which went into effect, I think, in 2018, the, the Trump tax cuts. Mm-hmm. That in 2018, Apple was worth a trillion dollars. Last year, they're worth two trillion dollars. Now, if their stock goes up one dollar and ten cents, this is reported on uh, NBC News this morning on a local channel. If their stock goes up one dollar and ten cents, then uh, they will be worth on Wall Street uh, three trillion dollars. Wow. So if that is not a chronological witness to what's going on with the inflation of tax cuts, throwing money at at an economy that was sound and a stock market that was sound and actually get putting it on a sugar high. And then all the other things that are going on with with covid and the spending there and states like mine, which are using covid money to um, uh, uh give bonuses to city workers and to build jails and to uh what was the other thing oh uh internet uh broadband internet Mm -hmm. with covid money because they're misappropriating it yeah and talking about uh, getting rid of the state tax plan too so the point is the inflation thing you're right on brother and and i see it and You've covered so many topics and important topics today that. Um, well, I would add to your I would add to your inflation thing, Randy. That um, part of the reason why Apple has done so well has been because we can't buy services, and so we're buying goods. People have a little extra money, and so they're upgrading their phone, or they're buying a new computer, or they're buying a tablet when they might not have done so otherwise, or they're picking up a couple of new, you know, a new new the the new AirPods or whatever. Um, because yep. they don't, you know, they're not spending their money at a restaurant or at the theater or taking a vacation. And so, hey, you know, let's buy some goodies. It makes us feel good. I agree. I agree. There's there's another point to that, another facet that hasn't been touched on, and and the the addiction to cheap labor and how yeah. that could be hurting the trucking industry uh, somewhat and immigration. Yeah. So there's an inflationary part there where it comes to labor and that uh, doesn't get talked about too much in the news today. Yeah. yeah, good stuff. Randy, thank you. Thanks for the summary. That was that was really well done. Bob in Farnham, Virginia. Hey, Bob, what's up? I think we're all, you know, kind of flabbergasted by the Republicans' obstruction simply for obstruction's sake. Yeah. Um, but we also see the authoritarian uh, pushes all around the globe. And I just wonder how much of a hack, happy accident it might be that we have no ambassadors um, and that they won't affirm um, ambassadors to our native, our NATO allies. Right. Ted Cruz is blocking it, it most of them. It weakens us everywhere. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And this planned. is, they're just trying to sabotage the Biden administration. It's just that simple. And I guarantee yep, you that there I, will never, you know, if, if, if an opening becomes available on the Supreme Court, uh, the Republicans will do everything they can to, to block any kind of an appointment, just like they did with Merrick Garland. They're not going to let another. They're not. They're not going to ever let a Democratic president have a Supreme Court nominee if they have any say over that matter. Right, but w- with the buildup of troops on the, on uh, the border, uh, Russian troops on the border of Crimea, 
it, it just all falls into place. Everything from sanctions against Russia coming out of their Republican platform in 26. I mean, it, the whole thing, it's just it. Trump looks was like an agent of Russia. Coordinated. Huh? Trump was an agent of Russia. Trump, Trump has been taking money from Russian organized criminals and Russian oligarchs for decades. I mean, he's completely well, in the pocket of the Russian oligarchs. And, and you know, the Russian I, government would be crazy not to take advantage of that. And they did. Right. And, and when you look back and you remember the uh, Republican senators celebrating Fourth of July over there, I think this is all part of the plan. You know, they're, they're happy to see the dissension within our country. They are thinking way, the enemy but, of my um, enemy is my friend. Anyway, let's hope for the best. Yeah, well, let's work for the best, Bob. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the, the critical effort. But I, I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. She compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. We also have free podcasts of the program. It boils the whole show down to about an hour. That's available through any of the places where you would normally get your podcasts. And that's free also. We're trying to get the word out. So many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Defending America from the weapons of mass deception. Brett in Seattle. Hey, Brett, what's on your mind today? Oh, I just had a quick question for you. Go Do for it. Do you think that these tornadoes will be the... Triangle shirtwaist moment for the 21st century. Oh, that's a really good question. I doubt it because the media has not been playing it like there's a villain. For people who don't know what you're talking about, Brett, back in the, it was the 19 teens, was it not? Or was it the 20s? 1911. 1911. 146 women died, mostly women. Yeah, there was a. Yeah, it was a, uh, and mostly Jewish immigrants, actually. A friend of mine's, uh, my best friend, lives in New York City, and his mother uh, didn't work in that place, but but uh, worked just down the street from it in Manhattan. Um, there was a factory where they were manufacturing clothes. It was called the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, and they had locked these women into this factory, and the factory caught on fire, and, uh, you know, as you said, 146 of them died. And it created such outrage that the result of that ultimately was the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Um, but, you know, immediately there were laws about, you know, safety and things like that. Um, I don't think that the, the I think the tornadoes in, in the Midwest could have been that kind of a triggering event or inciting incident, as it were, um, if they had been played in a big way as being climate change. And the head of FEMA came out and said, okay, this is going to be our new normal. And I, when that happened, I was thinking, okay, we're, we're getting close here. Um, but it, 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 you know, I don't think it's going to play out. So we'll see. But let's hope, Brad. I, I hope you are right. I, think, I hope you're on to something. I just don't, I'm, I'm not confident that you are. Joel in Joliet, Illinois. Hey, Joel, what's up? Tom, how are you? You just had an inflation rant, China manufacturing. Mm-hmm. I called the other day in regards to tariffs, and you mentioned about rebooting the American Dream, your book. Another fine job. Now, as far as tariffs, Trump threw a huge swath blanket of unfavorable uh, tariffs, caused a lot of waves. We obviously cannot go back to 
Alexander Hamilton's protectionism. But if you were in charge, I got a tariff question for you. Now, seeing as you can read a UPC code at a simple glass, glance, I'm asking this. What three tariff rules would you impose? I, I would actually, number one, I think, I think it's worthy of noting, and most people probably don't realize, that uh, President Biden is keeping Trump's tariffs on many Chinese products, number one. Number two, I, you know, Hamilton, I think that we could go back to Hamilton's plan. I think it would have to be, you know, modified for the 21st century. But, uh, you know, I think that there should be, I mean, prior to Reagan's presidency, we had average between 20 and 30% tariffs on pretty much everything coming into the United States. I mean, there's a huge, there's over 20,000 categories that you can find over the Department of Commerce's website. And we still have those tariffs. We still have those categories. And in many cases, there's still tariffs in place. They're just around one, 2%. They're very, very low. So I would be looking at strategic tariffs that have to do with national security. What are the things that we need to do to be able to keep our nation secure? For example, you had this giant tornado that took out all these homes in Kentucky. You got the freezing down in Texas. Building materials should not be coming from China. They should be made in the United States. It's a national security issue. Obviously, military stuff. Obviously, computer things. Joel, I got to run, but thanks for the call. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? Well, I tell you, it's a beautiful day out here in Long Beach. I'll tell you that right now. Oh, that's uh, nice. But, Professor, let me tell you something. Uh, I was just thinking the other day with the select committee. If I was in charge of the select committee, one of the people that I would call before my committee would be Christopher Ray. He's head of the FBI. And what I'd like to know is... He's head uh, of the FBI, and Trump put him there. Yeah, I'd like to know what y'all doing regarding this insurrection. Now, I remember when Roger Stone got busted. Remember, I called your program about him. Mm-hmm. And they, they rated him with a whole lot less stuff. So I'd like to know, what, what is Christopher Ray doing about this? His responsibility is to domestically, you know, to, uh, to protect us domestically from terrorists and whatnot. Where is he at on this? Now, my focus had been on Mayor Garland, uh, Merrick Garland, I'm sorry, the mm-hmm. Attorney General, with respect to him enforcing those uh, subpoenas or whatnot. Uh, but I think I was wrong. Well, not wrong, but I think I could have had a better idea looking at Christopher Ray. And I'm wondering, his hands are not tied. Why isn't his face or his name mentioned in all of this, Tom? I, I, I am with you, Morris. I, I want to know what's going on. I want to know, you know what Christopher Ray did with the FBI when Trump was in power. How did he hold on to that job? You know, basically, Trump fired everybody who didn't do what he wanted. And, and uh, I would love to see an inspector general's report out of the FBI. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure that one has been published. Uh, Chris Ray, you know, he's he's so t- you know he's a friendly guy. He looks like a nice guy. He's telegenic. He's he's got a nice soft affect. Uh, you know, he comes across as a friendly person. But uh, he was Trump's FBI director, and he's a Republican. And and Merrick Garland is a, was you know, <laughs> well, who knows about Merrick Garland? Um, but well, we'll keep an eye on that. Let's keep an eye on that because, I mean, uh, you know, that's a very important piece yeah. to this puzzle. It I'm should not all fall on the select committee. And thanks for this time, Tom. I'm with you. Thank you, Morris. Uh, Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Stephen, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, Merry Christmas to you, your family, and your staff. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you, Stephen. What's up? Hey, I was reading political this morning that uh, the Democrats, 181 to 135, overwhelmingly approved the 740 billion defense budget. What what is the sense in that? I'm trying to figure it out. Well, number one, if you don't approve the defense budget, then the Department of Defense ceases to exist. This is in the Constitution. No authorization for the Army can last longer than two years. It goes back to the debate that they were having at the founding about whether we should have a standing Army and whether that represented the threat of a military coup during times of peace. But didn't Mark Polkham Polkham say a few weeks ago that that he was going to do everything he could to to lower that, try to fight to lower that? Oh, yeah. You have about 50 Democrats who voted against it, you know. But but the other the other problem, half of the problem is that if you don't pass the the military defense authorization, you know, in 24 months from the last authorization, the military ceases to exist. And 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 the Congress has never allowed that to happen since the founding of the Republic. The other half of the problem and probably the bigger half of the problem is is what Dwight Eisenhower was talking about, which is that the defense industry, which literally did not exist before World War II, it did not exist as an industry, that the defense industry has now built factories, production factories, in every single congressional district in the United States. 
And, uh, you know, and this is why they get, you know, politicians who, you know, even generally are opposed to bloated defense spending voting for the damn bill, because if they vote against it, they're voting against five or 10,000 jobs in their own district. And that will be a really potent advertisement against them in the next election. And so they're scared to death about it. But Stephen, I'm with you. I, I am horrified by our level of, you know, it was $30 billion more than the president asked for. $30 billion more than the Pentagon asked for. Jack in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Hey, Jack, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's Hi. up? Hey, I was listening to your gentleman uh, talking about Deming, and it was very interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> because in Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith made one of the few references to Invisible Hand, that an invisible hand would keep British industrialists from moving the means of production overseas seeking cheaper labor. You're, a- you're so absolutely this is- right. This is one of my favorite rants is, you know, because the, the free market guys, the... the, the uh, uh, the, the whole neoliberal bunch of them, you know, the Chicago boys and whatnot, they all say, oh, yes, he said the invisible hand will cause everything to work out just fine, so we should just send jobs overseas. And if you read the entire sentence, he starts out by by uh, favoring do- the products of domestic manufacture, as I recall, was the first few words of that right. sentence. Um, you know, a person is motivated by the invisible hand to do what's best for you, know, blah, blah, blah. Um, back to you, Jack. I'm sorry. <laughs> I no, stop you're myself. absolutely right. But I just think it's I think it's interesting that, you know, since the 1600s, we've had this philosophy undermined by uh, greed. Yeah. Yeah. And that was that was, by the yeah. way, for people who are not familiar with Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations, that was published in 1776. It was published right. the same year that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. So, I mean, you know, and, and every I guarantee you, 100 percent of the founders had read that book. It was it was the one of the biggest well, book, the bestsellers of the of that generation. It was the foundation of uh, of enlightenment thinking and, and economics. So yep. yes, indeed. Yeah, anyway, good absolutely. to talk to you, Tom. Have a great day. Have a great holiday, and let's uh, let's win in twenty twenty two. There you go, Jack. Thank you very much. Amen. And uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Adam Smith. He he wrote two major books. The the first was Wealth of Nations. The second, which he actually wrote first. Uh, was called A Theory of Moral Sentiments. And it is like just a whole book warning people about greedy people running corporations and involving themselves in politics. Thus, the theory of moral sentiments. In other words, there should be morality in the marketplace. And that was like in 17, I don't know, the late 1760s, as I recall, when, when he published The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Again, a well-known book. Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how you doing? I keep, I keep, I work in a retail store, and I hear all the time that unemployment benefits are making people lazy, and that that's why nobody wants to go back to work, or some people aren't going back to work. What's what's your response to that? Because I keep hearing it. But well, number one, it. those benefits ran out a couple of months ago. Right, right. So. Uh, you know, not true. And and number two, Republicans have been saying that ever since 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt put unemployment benefits into the law, and there has never been any kind of study or analysis that proves it's a fact. If there was, every you know, you would know it. You would know it. You would. They, the Republicans would have memorized it. 1976, that was the year when we had a mild recession and unemployment benefits kicked in. And as a result of that, people quit going to work. If there was ever any example of a time when unemployment benefits made people lazy, we would all know that example. And it literally does not exist. This is a complete BS fabrication from the Republicans. And the proof of it is that we had very generous unemployment benefits, $600 a week for a while during the pandemic. Then it went down to $300 a week, which is still pretty good in addition to your regular state benefits. And then it went to zero, which is where it's been for several months now. And people are still saying, you know, I'm not going to work for 10 bucks an hour and expose myself to that damn virus. There's your story. Bradley in Northport, Michigan. Hey, Bradley, what's on your mind? Yes, thank you for your time, Tom. Um, what I'm thinking uh, with Kentucky obviously in need of a rebuild, and the federal government is obviously going to be involved with it. Uh, I guess that's uh, an act of socialism. Uh, 
Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, but not yeah. when Rand Paul does it, right? He was opposed yeah. to, to New Jersey getting money after Hurricane Sandy. He was opposed to New Orleans getting money after uh, Hurricane, what was it, Katrina. Uh, he was opposed yeah. to Puerto Rico getting uh, help after, uh, what was it? I think it was Maria. Um, but, uh, hey, you get a tornado in Kentucky. Suddenly, Rand Paul is right there at the White House with his well, hand out going, often, please help us. How often does Mitch McConnell utter the word socialism? Exactly. So turn it around, get aggressive with it. That's part of the problem that Bernie didn't get traction. That should have been done 10 years ago. Yeah. And point these things out, how we're all benefiting one another, and you can call it what you want. Yeah. But, but dis disarm that term socialism. Yeah, well, you know, they're, they're going to continue to use it as long as there's a generation yeah, alive who remembers the Soviets, you know, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Fine. But it's losing yeah, like its Chavez, potency. Yeah, well, it Chavez, even goes beyond that. Yeah, it's, yeah it, and they're all dead. Yeah. It's losing its potency. Bradley, thank you for the call. Bill in Seattle. Hey, Bill, you got a quick one? We're almost out of time. Uh, yes, I wanted to suggest that the uh, rampant violence that's going on including mass uh, shootings, uh, can be traced back to uh, massive inequality. I agree. There's, there's uh, three books written by uh, Wilkerson and Pickett, Richard Wilkerson and Kate Pickett. Uh, the most recent is called The Spirit Level. Um, another one is called Why Inequality Matters, and I forget the title of the third one. Um, say that again? The Inner Level, that's right, Sean just told me, and that's the most recent one. And they all deal with that, and they're brilliant, and I strongly recommend anybody who has an interest in this. Inequality is at the core of so much of this stuff. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Netherkin, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor O'Reilly, and Carne Verde. Thank you so much for working on our program, for helping keep this show uh, you know, alive and running. Thank you for contacting your, your the, however you're getting our show and telling them that you're listening. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.